almost exactly 20 years ago, September 11th happened. And for those of you who listen to this show, you know that I lost someone in the World Trade Center. And I did an episode about it when I started the show early on last, was it last September? But in honor of the 20 year anniversary, I wanted to do another episode and talk about the love story of the person that I lost, the reflections of what it's been like over the 20 years, and some thoughts that I have about the documentaries, the multiple documentaries that are coming out right now, you can see on Hulu and Netflix and all over. So I would like to dedicate this show to Kenny Caldwell. He died in the World Trade Center 20 years ago. Let's get into it. Welcome to Big Time Small Talk, stories and observations beyond small talk. I am your host, Jody Rollins. And today I want to honor the memory of my friend, Kenny Caldwell. He died in the World Trade Center. I've talked about him. I try to honor him every single year on my Facebook or social media, however I can. But on today's episode, I really just want to go back to that day and that time and go through everything in a way that I don't know that I have before because now that we have 20 years of processing and thinking and understanding and looking back and even me, I just got done watching these multiple part documentaries yesterday and today and I saw footage that I never saw because for the longest time I could not watch that footage. I would just look away. And there are so many lessons to be learned, of course, and there's so much to say, and that's what this show is about, right? It's stories and observations. So I wanna share my personal experience with losing somebody who was murdered on 9-11. And um, I think it's important to talk about what we knew on that day versus how we see things now. I mean, our society is different. Our technology is different. Everything is different. And I know when I talk to my stepkids, many of them, there are five, but many of them were not alive on 9-11, or if they were, they were, they were, they were all young. And... Um, if they were born, that is. And they don't know how different things were as far as communications and how it appeared, because we all know now it was terrorism and this is what happened. But at the time, it was a mystery, you know, for seconds, for minutes, until they realized that second plane hit the second building. So I guess I want to talk about all of that today. And, um, If you're somebody who is triggered by thinking about, talking about, listening to anything about 9-11, maybe this isn't the show for you. For me, I believe that when there's some deep pain or experience that you go through, if you avoid it, it just comes back at you worse. If you look at it and you deal with it head on, And you accept that it's pain and it's hurt and it's confusion and it's anger and it's all of these things. Then you are in control. You have the power over whatever has happened to you. As opposed to trying to avoid it when it, it maintains the power. So I like to just share everything that I thought to the best of my ability. And um, that's what I'm going to do today. Uh, Before we get started, I do want to thank you all for tuning in. Um, I did post about it on my social media. I have a brand new area, I almost said country, but 
It's not a country. Puerto Rico. We have brand new listeners from Puerto Rico. So thank you and buenos dias and bienvenidos to all of those in Puerto Rico. So the show is heard in 24 countries, including the United States, and now in the United States territory of Puerto Rico. So thank you so much. Um, if you're new to the show, thank you. Again, I never know how you find the show, but I'm glad that you did. If you've been listening and you're an old school listener, thank you for sticking with me. And anyone in between, thank you as well. If you want to write the show, you can write me at bigtimesmalltalkpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Jody Rollins. And um, that's J-O-D-I-R-O-L-L-I-N-S. Looks like roll, but it is Rollins. And um, if you want to leave a voice message, you can click in the show notes and just follow the instructions there. There's a link you can press, as well as if you'd like to support the um, show financially. Every little bit helps. Yes, this is free entertainment, but it's work. And my job is to really try to connect because that's my focus is when we can connect with each other, when we can understand each other's experiences, even if we don't share the same experience, we don't share the same race, the same sex, the same gender, the same anything, we can all try to connect with each other through podcasting. And I love that. So if you do want to support the show financially, you have several options to choose from. Just go to the show notes and click that link that says support this show and you can find out options on how you can do that. Um, I am on Twitter at Jody's Box and as in Jody's Mailbox. And I do have a show Instagram page that I'm active on, but not as active as my at Jody Rollins page. Um, I'm trying to shorten all of that <laughs> to the best of my ability because I'm like, ah, oh, this goes on forever. But just to make sure I get the business out of the way, please click subscribe. It really helps people find the show. It really helps people understand, find each episode, each one of you, you'll never miss an episode. And also if you click the five stars and leave a review, it really helps people find the show for sure. In fact, let me just see. Let me look on here on Apple Podcasts really quickly. Maybe I can find it and see if there are any new reviews. Uh, let me see. Do, 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 do. Um, my last review was March 9th. So it's been a while, folks. Please take just one minute of your time. Click those five stars and leave a written review. I'm up to 4.9 stars. I would love to get back up at five. I was at five stars forever. I'm working really hard, always trying to improve the show. If you could just take a moment and leave a written review, it makes a huge difference in whether or not new listeners tune in. And it means a lot to me. And if they're, you know, I'll read them. I'll read them on the air. So go ahead and do that. And uh, that's it. So that's the business of the show. So let's get into it. So September 11th, for me, it is heartbreak and a love story all wrapped up in one. When I was, mm, I think I was 20, almost 22, just 22, I had transferred to Hofstra University on Long Island. Hofstra, it's kind of a mouthful. And it was a major culture shock. I had gone to school in Western Colorado, a little small school of about 2,500. And then I transferred to this school with over 20,000 people. And I thought that's where I was supposed to be because I could meet new people and it would be more dramatic and I'd have more resources and more opportunities and classes and all these things. But instead, it was a complete culture shock. I mean, the students there, Long Island, to me, has always been everything that you ever hear that's negative about New York. New York City, to me, is a very positive place. People are actually quite friendly, believe it or not. Long Island, totally different. Like the accent is like very in your face and these girls were so mean and they would be like, so where are you from? And I'd say, you know, I'm from Colorado. Colorado, now let me just give you some direct quotes. No joke. 
back 100 years ago that they actually said to me when I transferred to this university. Number one, where's Colorado? Is it down by Kentucky? Kentucky, it's not a southern state. Like I can understand if you get Colorado mixed up with like Wyoming or Utah or Nevada. It's one of those more square western states. I get that. But Kentucky, this girl really didn't know where Colorado was. And a lot of Long Island for me was very provincial. They said things to me like, do you have skyscrapers where you grew up? Did you have buffalo in your backyard? They started calling me Colorado. And it wasn't a term of endearment. Like, hey, Colorado. It was like, you dumb hick, right? And it wasn't fun. I had um, no friends. I knew nobody at this school. And it was a completely out-of-body experience in the sense that I was so used to easily making friends and trying new things, and it was foreign. Everything about Long Island to me was foreign. The weather, the people, the accents, everything. And somewhere along the way, and I honestly don't even remember, I met Kenny Caldwell. And we were the same age, and he had been at Hofstra, I think, a year before me. And I don't even, I'm trying to remember. I think I, I had joined like the Black Student Union, which I think they still have those, but it was just an opportunity for Black students to, you know, um, meet and hang out and do things together and have all these different activities that they did. And I think he was like the president or vice president. I don't know. It's hard to remember. And so we became fast, fast friends. And he was one of the funniest people I ever met. And he actually, even though he was a college student, he was actually doing stand-up comedy like on the side and he would carry around this little crumpled up piece of paper and it would have all of his little notes on there and it would be like okay his jokes you know like oh I got to tell a joke about this or if there was something else that he thought of he's like oh yes that's funny I got to put that in there and I'm just like what in the heck with this guy now here's the thing girls you know when you meet a guy if you're not into him you automatically friend zone him and to me he was friend zoned. Like there was nothing romantic at all in my mind. And I didn't think he felt that way about me. I just thought we were really good friends. So we would hang out and do all kinds of fun stuff together and just, you know, study and whatever. And I remember his room, his dorm room was such a mess. Like I'm not the neatest person, but I was just like, wow, it is a mess. Um, nothing gross, but a little bit of a messy guy. And I knew he had come from humble beginnings. He had grew up in he had grown up in Philadelphia and I think just had come from a difficult background. And I just remember thinking, this is really cool that this guy is working really hard on his education at a great university and he's really funny. And I remember I think he even had like met Eddie Murphy or had done some stand up where Eddie Murphy had been doing some stand up too. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. This guy is super smart and really funny. And he was very tall and lanky. He was 6'3". And uh, <clears throat> so, you know, time went along with college and then we both moved on and we both lived in New York City and we both lived in Brooklyn and I lived in an area called Park Slope and he lived in an area called Brooklyn Heights and both like filled with brownstones and tree-lined streets just outside of Manhattan and really I, those, both beautiful neighborhoods, be beautiful areas of Brooklyn. And along the way, he had gotten a girlfriend. And it, I think I, at that point, had a boyfriend. And all four of us would hang out or I would hang out with him. And I always got the sense that he was sort of pining for me. Actually, let me back up. When we were still at college, he wrote me some kind of a note or a card or something expressing his feelings for me that were more than friendship. I almost forgot that part. Very important. And I remember being like, oh no, like totally shocked because I just didn't think of him that way. He was just, you know, my dude, like my friend, that was it. Totally friend zoned, not even thinking of him in that, in that department. 
And so it, our friendship was awkward for a little bit, but we just sort of moved on, brushed it on the rug, under the rug, and acted like it didn't happen. I mean, I think we both just, what are you going to do? We enjoyed each other's company, so we just stayed friends. Okay, so then when it was, you know, he had a girlfriend, I had a boyfriend, I still always felt like there was a connection between us, and he always sort of wondered what if. But whatever, years went by, and you know, that was that. I eventually moved to Los Angeles and we kept in touch. And I remember he was the last person I saw before I moved from New York City to Los Angeles. And he said, what do you want to do? What's one thing you've never done in New York that you can only do in New York so that you'll always remember this before you go? And I was like, well, I've never ridden the Staten Island Ferry, which is the, the ferry, the boat that goes from Manhattan to Staten Island and from Staten Island back to Manhattan. It's just, you know, it's like a bus on water. And it's a, you go along and you can see the Statue of Liberty and the whole outline of Manhattan and Brooklyn and New Jersey and all the Brooklyn Bridge. And it's just, it's, it's like, even though it's just a way of transportation, it's a really New York thing to do. And it's beautiful. So we agreed and that's what we did. And we just talked and talked and talked. And I was just like, so grateful that I'd kept this friend. Here it was 1997, I had met him in 92. So we'd been friends for years and it was just really neat. I mean, he had been friends with my boyfriend and I became kind of friends with his girlfriend. And it was just a really special time in all of our lives. And even though we didn't have any idea that he would be dead shortly. I just remember feeling like this is really a meaningful moment when we're on this Staten Island ferry. And it was special. And I felt like, oh, hmm. There fe I felt a bit of a connection to him, but I'm like, well, you know, it is what it is. I'm going, that's it. And by this time I didn't have a boyfriend. I moved to Los Angeles. And we continued to stay in touch and, you know, would talk on the phone here or there. And in 1999, he was like, hey, you know, you should come out and visit. And by this time, I was single. He was single. And I think he came out to visit me. Or so, It's hard to remember all of this. He did come out to visit in California once. And I think... He had a girlfriend, so there was no funny business going on. I have never been the other woman, and I've never cheated on anybody. So there's that, just to be clear. And But there was always this sense of what if with our friendship. And so then in 1999, he, it was like, all right, well, this is the first time in almost a decade when both of us were single. And there was a sense of, well, hmm. You know, is he still in the friend zone? And I think he was thinking, am I still in the friend zone? And so I went out there and he had had a job working in the Empire State Building and he had a professional job. He was working as a recruiter. And uh, he had gotten a new job in the World Trade Center. So he went from one really tall building to another really tall building. And he'd been working there for, I don't know, maybe a few months. I'm not really sure, but not a very long time. And he was super excited because it was a great job and it was great paying and he had bought his own place. And so I went out there and he was showing me his place and he was like, oh, you know, let's go to the World Trade Center. Um, I, I wanna show you my office and it's really cool. Now, let me just take a side beat here and tell you about the World Trade Center. First of all, the World Trade Center was built the same year that Kenny and I were born. And I even looked up the history years ago and how it was built and the, and the builder and the actual builder of the World Trade Center thought it, it was built to sustain, you know, a small plane hitting it. And he himself had said, and this was, you know, years after 9-11, that he was like heart sick that his buildings did not stand, you know, that couldn't, he couldn't have ever imagined what had happened, but he was still sort of broken over the fact that his buildings could not sustain this kind of impact and stay standing. Um, so 
when you live in New York back then, and anyone who lived there can tell you this, anyone who lived around the area, worked in the area, lived in the area, the World Trade Center was almost like, and this is how I feel about mountains. Growing up in Colorado, I love mountains, even living in California. I love to hike. There's something special when you look at the sky and you see mountains. To me, it's like, it's the closest to the sky you can get, like closest to this really, I don't know, I don't even know how to describe it, but mountains have always meant something to me. And when you climb to the top and you look down and you see the view of wherever you are, whatever mountain, it's it's spectacular. And so New York City not having mountains, the tall buildings are the closest thing to it. And the World Trade Center were the only two sort of twin buildings. There's, like I mentioned, the Empire State Building, there's the Chrysler Building, there's all sorts of tall buildings, but the tallest, most magnificent, most special, most glorious, most meaningful were the Twin Towers. And it was because if you were ever lost in Manhattan and you're like, okay, wait, where am I? I'm turned around. Am I east, south, north, west, whatever? You could look up in the sky and you knew if you saw the World Trade Center, you were facing south. So it was sort of a way to get your bearings. It was kind of like a gentle giant in the sky that was always there for you. I mean, I wasn't from New York City. I lived there for five years. And when I would take the train and there's a the D and the Q train when you go over the Manhattan Bridge, which is right next to the Brooklyn Bridge, it goes above ground. And a lot of the subways are underground. The majority of them are underground and stay underground. But the D and the Q train goes underground and then goes up above ground along the Manhattan Bridge. And when you're on this bridge, you could look out the windows and you see, like I would see these beautiful sunsets with the Brooklyn Bridge sort of cascading in front of the Twin Towers. And there'd be this orange glow and the sparkle of the sun just reflecting off of these buildings as you moved past them. And it was glorious. And I would always say to myself when I lived in New York, I knew I wasn't going to like grow old and die in New York City, I said, someday I will not live in New York. And as much as you're working and, you know, trying to get going and I was an actress and I'm trying to get Broadway plays and musicals and I'm trying to do and go and pay rent and whatever, and it's really expensive and it's a different kind of a place. I knew it was a special time in my life. And I knew that those buildings were special. And I have, you know, of course, had no way of knowing that any of this could happen. But I remember distinctly, like looking out that window of the train and just seeing their beauty. And so I remember when I had first lived in New York, I had seen the, tra the Trade Center and it was just like you go stand next to them and your neck just goes, your head has to go all the way back as you look up to the sky and you can't even see the top. They're so tall and it's there. I mean, magnificent is the best word, right? So here I was in 1999 having someone who worked in the trade center and it was like a sun, a Saturday or a Sunday. And so he's like, Oh, I want to show you. And I'm like, this is awesome. And it's really like you get into the building and he worked in the North tower, which is the one with the big kind of spire. When you look at the two of them, if you look at old footage, there's the twins and the North tower, obviously a little bit more North had the spike thingy sticking up from the top and the South tower did not. So he worked at the 102nd floor. There's 110 floors total, I believe. So it was up there. And you get in the elevator, and it was a huge elevator. It was kind of, to me, it seemed like it was almost the size of like three elevators. And it just whooshes you up, and it almost like your stomach just drops. And it's a little unnerving. And, you know, you it's just, and I want to add, too, when you come into the building, they had this like, um, I don't know, what would I call it? Like a mezzanine. And then there were all these flags that surrounded the mezzanine. So you would come in and it was just special. I don't know how else to describe it. And so 
we're whooshing up the elevator. And I'm thinking, this is so cool. Like, you know, I mean, it's just, it was a quiet day. So there weren't, it wasn't like a huge um, tourist trap. I don't know if they're open or closed or whatever at the time for tourism to come or go. But because he worked there, he just had his little pass and we went on up and he showed me his office. And I was just like thinking to myself, and I remember, I remember what his office looked like. I remember getting out of the elevator. You would turn to the right, you walk down the hall and you turn to the left and you go into the office building. I mean, the, the office doors of his building and of his office and then to the left and there was his cubicle and i was just thinking this is so amazing this person came from such humble beginnings and i remember that he was telling me he was he had made enough money that he wanted to send his mom on a cruise i mean he grew up poor and this is what he's been able to do with his life he's working at one of the most famous buildings in the world and I just was so proud of him. And, you know, to buy an apartment in New York City is a, is a feat. And he had bought this two-bedroom apartment. And I just was like, he's made it. He's 30 years old. And he's doing a job that he really, really likes. And he's good at it. And he's in this incredible building. So we kind of looked around his office. I think there might have been one person in there. And I was like, oh, nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. And he said, you know, we should go to one of the other floors. I don't know if it was a different floor or the other side of the 102nd floor. He said, because it's been totally gutted and there's nothing in there. And you can see all the way from the east to all the way to the west and then completely north. So it was almost like this, you know, half moon view of everything. And I was like, absolutely. And so we went in there and there was nothing. I mean, you could see like the rebarb and like scaffolding and that stuff. I don't know what it's called. It's like they spray it, like spray insulation or something. And then the windows and that was it. There was nothing in there. And I was saying to myself and to him, I said, this is the coolest thing. I feel so honored to be in this building, like in its sort of naked, in its, in, its, in its infancy phase, this particular floor, right? That they were building whatever they were building in there. And we just walked around and you go to the windows and you touch the windows and you look down and it's like, whoa, you can't see the ground. And you look out and you can see Long Island to your right and you can see New Jersey to your left and you can see the tip of Manhattan to your straight ahead, right? And we just walked around in there and it was just us. And I really felt lucky to have been in there. Never, ever imagining that people would have to be in that same space fighting for their lives. I can't imagine if the plane had hit then and I had been in there. I just, it was so high, so high up. Like it makes you a little nauseous. Like I'm not afraid of heights or anything like that, but you are high. And again, 102nd floor, not even the 110th. So we went back down and I enjoyed the visit. And then we sort of explored a relationship. And I thought, wow, I actually have feelings for this guy. You know, I, I could see dating him and I never had thought of it. I just like something really clicked. And then he proceeds to tell me that he's not really sure. And I, I remember I flew home and I was like late. We were, something happened where I thought my ticket was different. The time was different to get home. And we like, I'm like, oh my gosh, I thought it was this time and it was that time. So we like hauled ass and he dropped me off at the airport. And I was like, sorry. And he was like, all right, glad you made your flight. Bye. And I hauled through the, you know, JFK and made it onto my plane. And I never saw him alive again. And it just makes you think about goodbyes. And when you see somebody, and I wish, I wish that I hadn't messed up my ticket so I could have given him a real meaningful hug goodbye. But I didn't. 
because I didn't know he'd be dead. I thought that maybe we were going to start a relationship and then if it was going to be something, would I move back to New York? Would he consider moving to California? Like what? And as the weeks proceeded while I'm back at home and he's still in New York, it didn't work. He said he didn't feel for me what he thought he would feel, which I was devastated. And I remember by this time it was December of 1999 and it was about to be the year 2000, right? It was a big change and it was like this, you know, everybody was worried about Y2K, which for some of you, I know I have a lot of young listeners. They thought that because all of forever, we'd always said years like, okay, 1986. And when you would type in something, you would just say 86. Or if you had information about a different year, you would type in the year 97. You didn't type in all four digits. So the fear was that computers would be too confused when you started to add 2000, right? and that everything would shut down and the world would come to an end and none of that happened. But it was just this big thing that we were changing to a different century, right? A different decade and a different century. And Kenny and I had a big fight. I was like, well, what did you, why did you open the door to this relationship? And what did you think you were doing? What do you mean you don't feel what you wanna feel? I mean, all the stuff that you do when you're heartbroken. And I was heartbroken. So we had this big fight and we didn't speak. Again, December 31st of 1999, I remember I had a singing gig and I went to that singing gig and I was so sad. It's, you know, the change of the century, a brand new year, and I was so heartbroken. And 2000 comes, 2001 comes, and Kenny and I are not speaking. And I was just like, and this is, again, I, I don't even, was there Facebook? I mean, I don't even think there was MySpace at this time. So there wasn't social media. I remember I barely was doing stuff on web TV. I don't know if you guys remember that. It was this thing you would plug into your television set and it was a way to get on the internet, but it wasn't a computer, but it sort of was. That was what I think I had at that point. And I think I had an email address and it was very, very new. I had a flip phone. There was no such thing as a smartphone or if there was, it was only for, you know, the wealthy. So my phone didn't do anything but make phone calls and play some really, you know, <laughs> I don't even know what to call them, like very primitive games. So then in July of 2001, Kenny wrote me a letter and sent me a card and he said, I remember, and I still have it in my scrapbook. He said something about missing our friendship and wanting it back. And by now I was, I would say, for the most part over him. But to be completely honest, there was a little part of me that was thinking, well, maybe he realized that he did love me and that maybe it was supposed to be, but I don't know, right? So I was hopeful. So I, I mean, I was like, wow, okay, well, I'm glad, you know, he, he said that he missed me and I, I don't, I didn't know if I would never talk to him again. I didn't know. And so I remember it was the end of July and I was like, well, I'm going to give him a call in a, a soon. It was just like one of those things. I get, I got to give him a call. Let me just reach out to him. And, you know, days went by, life was busy. I was working. And I remember one day, before I had to go to work. It was early in the morning and I was like, this is the perfect time to call him because of the time difference or whatever. And I called him and he picked up and it was September, I want to say September 1st-ish, some, some, somewhere in there, September 1st, 2nd, 3rd, I'm not sure, of 2001, <clears throat> two weeks before obviously 9-11. And uh, we talked and I, I was thinking, well, maybe is there a spark here? And he told me he had met somebody and he thought that this was the one. So as much as I was a little sad, I was happy for him because, I mean, he really was a special person. I mean, you know, people say that all the time about the dead, but there are people in my life that have 
been there for me, supported me, made me laugh, lifted me up. You know, he was there for me when my dad died. He was there for me when I had a situation with my ex-boyfriend at the time, like all kinds of things. Um, just just a, a, a really good, special person. And so we had this long conversation about everything, like catching up over the past two years and sort of were, it was like I was healing the wounds as we were talking and forgetting about that fight from, you know, December of 1999, forgetting about the fact that we hustled to the airport and I didn't really get to say goodbye, forgetting about the part that where he broke my heart and just remembering that we were two people that really just connected. And I just remember saying, I'm so proud of you, Kenny. And he was telling me all of these things that he was doing and just his life. And I just was like, this is amazing, all the things that he's done. And I remember I was late for work because I didn't want to get off the phone with him. And he told me some stuff that I won't share with you guys, but something that I didn't ever know about some other situation. And it was almost as if it was almost as if we both knew that that would be the last time we ever spoke. Obviously, there's no way I could have known that. I had never heard of Osama bin Laden. I didn't know about terrorism. I knew nothing. You know, planes used to get hijacked in the 80s. People did what they were supposed to do. They would land the plane. The people would get off. They were traumatized, but they would go home to their loved ones. Or there were hostages that were held for hundreds of days and then released. I didn't, terrorism was nothing in my brain. I didn't know anything about it. Nothing. I never followed it on 60 Minutes when they talked about it. I know that they did now. But when you're in your 20s and, you know, just turned 30, 31, you're thinking about how to put your life together, not how it's going to be torn apart by terrorism. So it was just this meaningful conversation. And it was just like healing. And that was the last time I ever spoke to him. And I just think that I think about what if he hadn't have written that letter and he would have just died and we were stuck eternally in that place of, well, I'm mad at you, so I'm not talking to you. Well, I'm mad at you, so I'm not talking to you. Like it was the greatest gift he could have ever have given me. Healed in one conversation. I felt healed. And so then, of course, what happened next we all know. And I want to take a break and talk about that fateful day. Stay with me. I'll be right back. Welcome back. So I had had this glorious conversation with Kenny and I remember going to work that day feeling like while I'm not overjoyed that he's found someone special for himself or you know to be in his life and I I, I got the feeling that he was going to try to you know propose to her I was just happy that our friendship was sort of intact. And I looked forward to someday going to his wedding and maybe him coming to mine someday and our kids playing together. Like, that's what we talked about. And then two weeks later, he was dead. And uh, September 11th was a Tuesday and I had been working in downtown LA and I, you know, I used to go to bed relatively late and wake up usually around around 10 a.m., which <laughs> I laugh now because, I mean, 
10 a.m. is practically lunchtime now, especially when you when you're married to a farmer and he does farmer hours and also he's a morning person. I mean, he's like the happiest, most joyful morning person. I love being around him. So I'm just I've turned into kind of a morning person because I like to get up early with him, make him breakfast, hang out with him, do whatever I can when he's not rushing off to work during harvesting season. And now with a newborn who thankfully right now is sleeping, you know, we're up all kinds of hours. So 10 a.m. seems so late, but it was the norm back then when I worked nights and I was pursuing acting and singing and talk radio and all of that stuff. So I worked in restaurants and worked at night. And sometimes I would work a lunch shift. And so I, you know, had gone to sleep watching HBO. And I've talked about this part before, so I won't spend too much time. And so my TV was on HBO and I woke up in the morning. And this is back when you had um, portable phones as well. Like you had that big clunky portable phone. And uh, I woke up and I turned on the TV and it was on HBO and I looked at my portable phone that was also a built-in answering machine and I had some seven or nine missed calls. And I'm like, what? And now usually in the morning I might have one missed call, but mostly it was zero. And I looked at the thing and it was like, who are these from? And I clicked on it. It was like, my mom, my mom, my mom, my mom, my mom, my mom. I'm like, what in the hell is going on? So... I was like, let me call her back. But oh, I think the view is on. And I switched the channel to um, ABC. And I thought, well, let me listen to one of these messages. That's what I said. Let me listen to the message that my mom left in the voicemail. And right then I see the news is on. It's not the view. And I listen to my mom's message right when I'm seeing like the trap, the, the trade center collapse. Because if it was 10 o'clock, Pacific time, 11, 12, it was 1 p.m. New York time. So it was over. It was over. The buildings had collapsed. Kenny was dead. It was over. But I knew nothing because I slept right through it and I'm on a different, different time zone and a different coast. And as I see these towers collapsing, I hear my mom's message. And she says, Jody, early this morning, two planes hit the World Trade Center and I lost it. I don't remember what else she said. I started shaking. I thought some 50,000 people were dead. I, I mean, because I'm seeing the videos of just the trade centers collapsing. I thought they flew into the buildings both at the same time and they just both collapsed and everyone's dead. And I'm like, oh my God. And I think I have to call my mom. I couldn't remember my mom's phone number. I couldn't remember anything. It was like my brain just went a blank, like blank. All I had to do was push redial or last call in like one button. And I finally got it together and I called my mom and I'm like, what happened? And she knew that Kenny worked in the World Trade Center. She had never met him, but she knew about him. And then she started telling me about Osama bin Laden. And I'm like, who and why? And why would people do this? And, you know, I'm crying and just obviously a wreck. And the weird thing I mean, so many weird things. And I've talked about this part too. I, I tried to call him and I, I the phone was like, do, 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 do the, to the tornado. All circuits are busy. I called Verizon. I said, if somebody was blown up, would their phone still work? And this person obviously knew what I was saying because it was making no sense, but they knew what I was asking. And I got the nicest person and they said, yes, it would unfortunately, because I was hoping maybe he was still alive. And that's why I got like, finally, I think I did get his voicemail or I don't even remember what I got. But I really was hoping that that meant that he was alive, that maybe he had gotten out or he'd been helicoptered out. I don't know, escaped down the stairs. He was on the 102nd floor. I now know his tower was hit first on the 101st floor. I'm sorry, on the 81st floor. So hit first, but it fell second. South Tower hit second, but fell first. And so I thought maybe there's a chance he was alive and he escaped. Maybe he wasn't there. Maybe he was at a meeting. Maybe, 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 maybe. And so I just waited and cried and watched the news and stopped watching the news and cried and all sorts of strange things happened. And when I was in LA, everything was beautiful and sunny and everyone was going about their day like it was nothing. I remember I went to the grocery store and everybody was like, have a nice day. And it didn't affect people. They would just talk about, oh my gosh, did you see this? Almost 
the same way you would say, did you see that movie? Or did you see that car crash? That was crazy. Like with almost excitement and glee. And I was pissed because I didn't know if Kenny was a, was dead or alive. And I knew his family went to New York to search for him. And his picture was posted with all those flyers. For those of you who don't remember, there were flyers all over, all over these fences, people trying to find their loved ones, hoping they were in a hospital. Maybe they had amnesia, anything. Were they in New Jersey? Did they get transported? Were they confused? Were they still out? Were they in a coma? Will they get rescued from the rubble? Only 18 people were rescued from the rubble. 18. And then the days passed, day after day after day, and we heard nothing, nothing. I remember if I would get a phone call from a, a area code that I didn't recognize, I'd be like, hello? Like, is this information? You know, waiting for something from his family. And the phone number never came. I'm sorry, the phone call never came. And that's the thing I think like young people don't realize. It wasn't like you knew, you know, if there's a plane crash and once you find out there's a plane crash, you know that your loved one is dead. They were piecing it all together bit by bit, day by day, hour by hour. People didn't know where people were. Finally, in October, they decided it's done. There's nothing. There's no one else. All the hospitals, everyone who's anyone has been accounted for, there's nothing. In October, weeks and weeks went by. And we got nothing. Not a watch, not a bone fragment, nothing. Years went by even. And some people would get bone fragments or pieces because people sifted through the rubble for years and years, and they would get something of their loved ones, some peace. Kenny's family got nothing. What I understand, he was able to make a phone call. I think he called his mom and his girlfriend. I'm not 100% sure, but I know he was able to make a phone call. He didn't die instantly. He, from what I remember, again, the information was sketchy and with memory and, and trauma, it's not always good. But what I recall is that he thought that they were going to send helicopters to get people off at the roof, but they were either stuck in the elevator or stuck somewhere. That's all I know. And that's all I'll ever know. And I, I think about when they finally did planned, plan a, a memorial. And I flew in to New York City in October. And the towers were still smoldering. It didn't just get put out in a couple days. Again, this is a month later, over a month later. And it was smoldering. And it was eerie. I took the subway and you could smell this acrid, burnt, metal, weird smell everywhere. It just was in the air. And I'll never forget that smell. And so we went to his memorial and I remember his boss somehow survived. I guess he was at a meeting or something and his boss spoke and he said, I can't remember the exact number, but something like, this is the 10th one of these that I've been to. Can you imagine losing all of your employees like that? And it was just so deeply, deeply sad. It's very different if somebody dies of a heart attack while that's sad, or cancer while that's sad, or even a car crash, that's immensely sad. But when someone is murdered, their lives just cut short, and it's this national tragedy. I can tell you the weight of it was heavy. It almost seemed like I was sort of floating because it was just so surreal to be there and to be dipped in so much sadness. And so the interesting thing is, for me, 
this is a love story. It's easy to just look at the tragedy and the pain, and I'll never forget the tragedy of it and the pain. I'll never forget that day. And when I watched those documentaries today and yesterday, and I saw all the footage of the people running, and when they look up at the tower, I'm like, my friend is in there. He's in there fighting for his life, dying. It truly is a love story because I am grateful that I knew him. Sometimes I think we ask ourselves, would we rather just not have experienced pain or tragedy or loss or death? Sure, who wants any of that? But I wouldn't trade it because I had Kenny in my life. I wish he were still alive, but I am so honored and so grateful to have known him. His mother is just a special, special person. I feel connected to her for the rest of my life. His brother, same thing. His sister, his family, his friends, his ex-girlfriend and I keep in touch. It's just, I tend to try to focus on the beauty in this story. Am I the most positive person all the time? No. Am I the most optimistic person all the time? No. (laughs) But with regard to him, Being able to know what it's like to care deeply about a person is a gift. I remember years had gone by and I just, every year, all the time, I would think about him. It wasn't even just like a once in a while thing. It was a regular occurrence. Like he's still with me. He's still with me. And several years ago, I got to go to the 9-11 Uh, museum, which if you haven't been and this day has touched you in any way, and I think it's touched all of us in some way, if you can, go. It is, while very sad and melancholy and heavy, it's a beautiful thing that they've done there. They have this deep well of this pouring water and you can't see the bottom of it. It's dark and it's supposed to represent all the tears that are cried for the loss of these people. And you see the plaques and there's his name. And then you go inside to the museum and you go down into, like you take this escalator and I don't know why they did it this way, but part of the wall is I think part of the concrete of the Trade Center, I don't know for sure. And then they have a fire truck down there and they have audio from the day, from the news, and they have like people's shoes that they got knocked out of and their briefcase and the papers and they have all of these things. And then they have pictures of all those that died and it's just a beautiful statement to the loss of these people. Life is short. Obviously, it was much shorter for somebody whose life was cut short at 30 years old or 31. But he had a beautiful life. And no terrorist, no Osama bin Laden, no anybody, no Mohammed Atta. That's the name of the hijacker who flew that particular flight into the North Tower. Mohammed Atta. You see his picture, if you want to Google it, he looks evil. He was evil. But no amount of his evilness can ever take away the connection that Kenny and I shared. So the memories are real. The pictures are few because there was no social media, but my memories are bright and happy. And there was a time when I couldn't even look at the, any movies that had the World Trade Center, you would, they would always shoot those when they would have, you know, New York films. And I would look away because it was too painful. Now I look at them and I'm just like, they were glorious. And I'm lucky. I'm one of the lucky few who got to go into that building and see it in a way that most never would have and now never will. I am lucky to have known Kenny. I'm lucky to have lived in New York City before all of that tragedy. And I'm lucky to have been back to see it rebound. 
there is deep sadness when you lose somebody like this. And it was painful and I cried a lot of tears. There were times when I didn't think I would stop crying and I'm not exaggerating. But I'll never forget the phone call. I'll never forget the time we spent together when he was showing me around the Trade Center. I'll never forget the time we spent together at Hofstra University when I was miserable. The laughs that he brought me. No one can take that away. No one. So when we look back, and here we are in the 20th anniversary, I think and I ask myself, what have I learned? What, what is the takeaway from all of that, all of that pain? People who lost mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers. I remember being so angry when the news would say, oh, the poor family members, the poor family members. And I wanted to say, what about the friends? He was my family, but I'm not his family officially. So please say friends. When you're in the middle of grief, you say weird things and you feel weird things. I remember being pissed off when people would say 9-11. And I would always say September 11th because there's nothing short about it. 9-11 was a shortcut. It was a, a quick way of saying something huge that happened. I could not say 9-11. I had to say September 11th and I wanted everybody else to. Now doesn't matter so much. 20 years has gone by. And I think the takeaway is that, yes, we know that life is short. And it's not really, in my opinion, possible to live each day like today is your last, as they say. But when you have special memories and people in your life, in your life that you connect with, Appreciate that. Even if it doesn't work out, I could easily be bitter and just say, oh, it broke, he broke my heart. And then next thing you know, he was dead. I appreciate that my heart broke because I know the depth of feeling, of caring for somebody. So to Every single person out there who lost someone on that fateful day, whether it was at the Pentagon, whether it was in Pennsylvania for the plane that crashed into the ground thanks to those heroes, or anyone who was on the plane or anyone who was in New York or touched by this, I want to dedicate this show to you and know that you are not forgotten and that we're all connected by this horrible thing but no terror can ever take the love out of our hearts that we felt and feel for our lost loved ones. Never. So that means Osama bin Laden loses. That means the Taliban or whoever, they lost. They didn't win. They didn't beat us. They lost. People are scarred physically, scarred emotionally, but they still lost. Those people who are scarred physically and emotionally, um, and I guess I consider myself one, at times I'm like, well, I wasn't there, and sometimes I would feel a little guilty, like what if I had woken up, and what if I could have called him and said goodbye and maybe made him feel better or something, but... You can't what if yourself to death. But each of us has our own pain that we each feel about all kinds of things. The people who lost a spouse, obviously, or a son or daughter, they feel more pain than I can even imagine. But that doesn't make my pain any less real. Some of the news reporters were saying, yes, it was horrible for us. We were covered in the dust. We had to run for our lives. Things fell on us and we were petrified, but we lived so we shouldn't be allowed to worry about all of our own personal pain. Everyone's pain is different. We all go through different things in life, but that doesn't lessen your lessons. 
So it is a story of love for me. And I am so glad that I knew him. I am so sorry that he is gone, but I am happy that I knew him. So Kenny, if there's any way you can hear me, I hope you know that you are gone, but never forgotten. And to everyone who was lost on that day, you are gone, but we will never forget September 11th. I dedicate this show to you, Kenny Caldwell. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it.